In this episode of The Wharton Current, I sit down with my co-host Thomas Obermeyer and guest Ed Ballard, the Bureau Chief for Wall Street Journal's Pro-Sustainable Business Unit. Join us as we talk about the implications of COP26, what sustainability KPIs are gaining traction in public and private sectors, and how companies are planning to meet seemingly impossible carbon pledges. A note to our listeners, this episode was originally recorded in late December 2021, and our guest Wi-Fi was unstable at times. We still think the insight is fascinating and relevant. Hi, everyone. I'm Ellie McDonald for The Wharton Current, and I'm joined by my co-host, Thomas Obermeyer. We're excited to be here with Ed Ballard, the Bureau Chief for Wall Street Journal's Pro-Sustainable Business Unit. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role? Sure. So I've been with the Journal and Dow Jones for nearly a decade. It's been it's pretty much my first job, my first real job anyway. Uh, and I've done various jobs at, at the Journal. So I joined covering corporate news, did a stint doing commodities markets, private equity. And I had previous to this, my, my most recent job was as an editor for something called the Pro Group, which is it's kind of an umbrella term for a bunch of different verticals and sections at the Journal aimed at professional readers of one kind or another. So it's like venture capital pro is a vertical end of logistics professionals, things like that. And we started thinking as um, covering sustainability and, and climate and related issues became increasingly part of kind of every business journalist's, journalist's beat in one way or another. We thought there was potential for, for a new vertical aim specifically at sustainability professionals. So I guess that the people who are responsible for doing all the things that companies are promising to do when it comes to climate or diversity or anything else to do with sustainability. And that was, we started working on, I guess, around this time last year and we launched late spring and yeah, so that's now my job, editing and writing stories in that field. So thank you, Ed, for telling us a bit about your background. It sounds like you had a really interesting trajectory to get where you are today. And speaking of your current role, you recently wrote a fascinating article about the results of COP26. And based on your research, who do you think were the winners and losers of the conference, particularly in terms of business sectors? So before approaching the question of who the winners and losers, you have to take a view on whether or not the conference changed anything at all. And the, the, the key thing is that it set out to do was to speed up um, the decarbonization of the world economy, right? And if it achieved that at all, then it was to some degree a success. And if it didn't, then it wasn't. I think the consensus is that it kind of did move the needle a little bit. There are a few, you know, key things that happened that some people were perhaps surprised by. So for example, there was a big announcement with the US and China agreeing to work together on um, decarbonization. India set a net zero target for the first time. And that was a really big, that was a big step, even though people thought it was, its timeline was very unambitious. And uh, another uh, sort of maybe perhaps under something that people weren't that aware about was the fact that countries will now, from now on, will have to revise their, their country specific emissions targets every five years. And that wasn't something that was set in stone beforehand. And I think all of that is a roundabout way of saying that probably after the conference, maybe the world is on a slightly faster decarbonization uh, trajectory than it was beforehand. 
And what that means is, as a, as a really roundabout way of addressing your question, which is who are the winners and losers? Now, probably now, if you are somebody, if you're a company in the business of um, supplying crucial things for that decarbonization, then you're probably happier now than you were before the, before the conference. So if you're a renewable energy supplier, you're probably relatively pleased with the direction of travel, with what leaders were saying at COP26. If you're maybe a supplier of battery metals, people need to make electric cars, then again, you'll be pleased that it wasn't a total failure, right? If, if there'd been no deal, if, if it'd just been a diplomatic a farrago, some, you know, some of these UN summits have been in the past, then that could have taken the wind out of the sails of the renewable energy sector, for example, which has been a beneficiary of the decarbonization trend. Uh, so yeah, maybe you could say the renewables are a winner. Maybe, yeah, electric car makers and suppliers, again, like the suppliers of the crucial materials for making electric cars. So I, I think just last week, Toyota stepped up its, um, its electric car making target and they cited COP26 specifically as a reason for doing that. And previously they kind of a holdout among big car makers. They, I mean, it's not like they weren't trying to make electric cars at all, but they were kind of on the fence about how big their business was going to be. And now they're clearer that it is probably the way the industry is going. And that is a part due to the political noises that came out of COP26. When we think about from a macro perspective, the losers, one, it's everyone who was anti-coal given the, the watered down language of the coal phase out agreement. Yeah, I think coal's a really, that's a really crucial, crucial one when you're thinking about winners or losers, because I mean, as you say, the, the language on the phase out, the phase down, as it was timed at the end, it was changed from, you know, phasing out coal. For any users, users who weren't, or listeners weren't aware, the language just changed from phasing out coal and subsidies for fossil fuels. It was changed to phasing down, which is a weird term, like no one ever says phasing down of inefficient subsidies of fossil fuels and, and coal. So, so you could say, well, that was a great triumph for the fossil fuel lobby because, you know, what was a more hardline piece of language in the final document was um, weakened. But on the other hand, there, this is the first time that, that any UN climate treaty ever mentioned fossil fuels in any way. So. So it was quite a striking development at that point. And it all, I think from, if you were a, a coal supplier, it, it would really depend on w what your expectations were going in. I don't really know about it. I don't know whether it was, whether this was a reprieve for them or if they were surprised even to be named in, in the UN treaty for the first time. You could say that if you were somebody who really wanted, so this isn't a business sector, but if you were perhaps someone else at COP26, like lobby groups or environmental groups wanted a really strong signal that not just coal, but fossil fuels in general were going to get held on a much, much accelerated time frame. then this would be a loss, I suppose. But it's harder to judge from the point of view of the businesses at that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think if we continue kind of on the, the stakeholder analysis of all of this, yeah. um, COP's also a great time for companies to release climate pledges and tout all of their green and environmental and sustainability improvements that they've made over the past few years. Greenwashing questions aside, do you see coming out of COP26 climate pledges leading to, similar to the Toyota investment you mentioned earlier, more investments into carbon intensive industries, thinking heavy industry, shipping, 
Do you see a lot of progress coming from the private sector there? Or will most progress come from the, the public sector and governmental initiatives and um, subsidies? It's a tough question. I think there's definitely, I, I think most people would agree that this year there's been a change in perhaps not just the rhetoric, but also action from quite, if not the entire um, business world, then large parts of it. Around COP26 in particular, I don't know. I mean, you can see certain um, sectors or certain companies in certain sectors that are willing to, to stick their neck out and take a risk to be a leader in this space. So for example, uh, at COP26, the CEO of Maersk, the, the shipping giant, he said that he saw the decarbonization shipping as the biggest profit opportunity in the company's history. And it was, you know, it's a company that was founded in the 19th century. And you probably, I mean, I mean, obviously you could say, well, did he mean it? But probably on balance, just take, take the guy at his word and assume he meant it. And Maersk is a company that's invested an awful lot in various the various avenues that could possibly be the solution for decarbonizing shipping, which obviously contributes enormous volume of greenhouse gases. And they see that being the company that comes out on top and owns the technology or owns access to the fuels that will allow customers to move their stuff around the world without polluting, they could see enormous uh, potential for profit by doing that. Uh, and so I don't think it's all about greenwashing. I think a an awful lot of the noise around COP26, it was, I, I'm sure it was, a, there's a lot of bandwagon jumping and companies speaking that they had to, to make the right kind of noises to, to appease their stakeholders, to get some good publicity. But that isn't the same thing as saying that these are all completely empty promises. Ed, to follow up on corporate climate pledges, we've recently seen investors take a more serious look at the legitimacy and KPIs of corporate climate pledges. I think, as an example, there's been a lot of buzz about what Scope 3 emissions are. Would you mind talking about how Scope 3 emissions are defined and what challenges exist in measuring those emissions? And then more broadly, walk us through what KPIs investors actually seem to care about. So Scope 1 and 2 emissions are your the emissions that you produce within your own operations as a company. Scope 3 are the emissions that you're responsible for, but don't directly, but not directly. So it might be that your suppliers, the people who provide your raw materials, burn a lot of fossil fuels to, to produce the stuff you need. Or it might be that your customers uh, produce a lot of um, emissions when when they're using your stuff. So to take the example of, of a gas company, your scope through emissions would include those um, that are generated when people drive cars using your gas. And yeah, to, to go back to your question about the key, the KPIs for climate pledges, Scope three is probably a fairly important indicator of whether a company is serious about the promises that it's made about decarbonization. Because like maybe, I mean, people have been talking about reducing their emissions for like decades, I suppose, without often putting a lot of meat on the bones. And having a strategy or showing you like seriously considered the question of your scope three emission, even if you haven't got an answer to the question, is a sign that you, you're serious about this problem. So, and to take a step back, the reason that scope through is, is a challenge is that obviously it's, it's much harder to measure the emissions from something beyond the perimeter of your, of your company. If you're talking about your own operations, you can look at your energy bills, you can look at your, the number of miles your trucks drove, things like that. And then you get a handle on 
the, the greenhouse gases that you account for. But beyond that, you're really relying on using estimates, which might or might not be reliable. So there's a measurement problem. And obviously to produce those numbers, you're, or, or, or promising to do so, you're really promising to do something that isn't entirely within your control, right? You're, you're promising to do something that's, that involves a lot of other actors and it's inherently quite complicated. And so, yeah, that's one of the scope three is one of the, I guess, a, a test of whether company is serious at decarbonization. Other ones might be a term you'll see a lot is science-based targets, which means essentially has some external body threat that there is confusingly, there's also a group called the science-based targets initiative, which is one of the enormous number of this alphabet soup of third party agencies and nonprofits that are involved in certifying company sustainability credentials. So there is this group called the science-based targets initiative. And they will look at your climate plan and say, yeah, this, this climate plan goes far enough for your company to play a role in keeping the world on track for 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature rise, which is what the Paris climate change agreement, that's the, the desired outcome, right? By 2100. So a science-based target is one that aligns with that best case scenario trajectory. And if the company, increasingly companies are getting the science-based targets initiative to sign off or scrutinize their, their climate plans. So they have that seal of approval as well. Other KPIs, I guess, lots more companies are linking their executive pay to sustainability goals. So that's the companies doing that. Again, that will satisfy investors to some degree. You'll show that they're, they're taking some risk. Some people have some skin in the game. I mean, so I, I mentioned this alphabet stoop of, of different agencies and groups and standards. And these are, so there's probably hundreds of different acronyms, uh, of different sustainability metrics that you'll see in corporate reports. And all of these, to some degree or another, will, and that the whole point of this is that they sort of show investors you're, you're taking this seriously enough that you've assessed your own promises, your own plan against some external benchmark and that you, that um, whole world of that alphabet soup of, um, of third-party standards is probably starting to coalesce as well. So it is perhaps getting easier on that front for investors to, yeah, to, to figure out where the companies are, how they're performing relative to their peers. Yeah. To follow up on that, you mentioned it's alphabet soup, and I've definitely seen that while looking at company reports. I'm seeing a lot of acronyms. Are investors hiring specific employees that can wade through all of these acronyms and have a better sense of what is real? Or if they're not hiring specific employees, how are they making realistic assessments of which KPIs to pay attention to? That's a great question. I mean, there's certainly a, an ESG hiring room. And, and if you're someone who's been hired to, to work specifically on sustainability, then, then I'm sure a big part of your job will be figuring out which of these different um, metrics matter. And perhaps in your particular sector, to your particular set of, of investors and stakeholders. But, you know, like even speaking to senior, to chief sustainability officers or CEOs, people don't always know what the, people don't know in all cases, what the, what the most important, the most relevant 
standards and guidelines and the best of bodies and all the rest of what they are. And so I think it's quite important that, that this landscape is starting to simplify. Um, so for example, actually there's something that happened at COP26 was there was an announcement, several of the most important sustainability standards setters, I, from the top of my head, I remember them, the Value Reporting Foundation and a couple of others, they all agreed to, to line up beneath the aegis of the global accounting standards setter. And so you have three or four different previously almost competing sustainability ranking agencies now lined up, they're going to get on the same page. And that's continuing a trend that was already kind of happening organically. So there were certain standards that have clearly become a benchmark. So for example, in climate reporting, there's something called TCFD, uh, and that was already becoming the essential benchmark and was very widely accepted. Great. So it sounds like if you're trying to be an investor that's conscientious of renewables and sustainability and carbon capture, you're going to want to push these companies to adopt the global quote-unquote accounting metrics for ESG and KPIs. That's fascinating to know. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, for sure. It's That's the direction things are going in. It's getting. And the other thing to know is, of course, that regulators are increasingly interested in this. So the, the STC is currently working on its sustainability disclosure framework, which, again, will probably line up with the sort of frameworks that were, that were that we're gaining currency anyway, but precisely what will be in those in the SEC's rules will also in large part shape the disclosure landscape for sure. Ed, I know your background is mostly in or more so in private equity. I have one more public equity question. Picking up on the oil and gas comment you made earlier, I think we see big differences between the American oil and gas companies that are less willing to kind of clearly transitioned to clean energy and the European ones, thinking of Total, Shell, Ersted, fully committing, and a handful of others. At the same time, you're having more activist investors in the US, notably engine number one. In Germany, RWE is currently a target of an activist investor pushing them to split. Shell has been under pressure to do so as well. Where do you see this potentially going? Do you think that oil and gas companies will see a path to accelerating the energy transition on their part. And we can look at this separately in in Europe and in the US. And then going back to maybe your background in private equity, do you think the legacy carbon intensive projects might be scoped up by uh, private equity that doesn't have to abide by sustainability disclosures and maybe doesn't have the appetite for those commitments that the public markets seem to have? Sure. Yeah, I think the last point is really, really important. Where would you like to start? I mean, with the, the I think there's definitely a distinction between the stated goals of, uh, as you said, the, the US oil majors and those in Europe. Do you see activist investors having success in trying to split oil and gas companies into a clean major and a dirty major, so to speak? I, I definitely would definitely wouldn't want to make a call on that. It's, like these pressures aren't going to go anywhere, right? And you can definitely see, you can see the rationale for splitting up these businesses. You have different groups of investors with different preferences about what they're exposed to in terms of not just the, the emissions of their portfolios, but also, I mean, perhaps you get different return characteristics from the, from the dirty part of the business and the clean part of the business. I think it'd be really hard to say in general whether or not all the oil majors are going to split up that way, especially because you, you could definitely make a case that you kind of need the money, the cash flow from your legacy business to 
in an ideal world, fund the expansion of, of your clean energy business. And that's definitely, I think, be what the European automakers have definitely been trying to do, or at least what they've been saying they've been trying to do. So this year, Shell, BP, all the rest of the big European automakers have been investing a lot more in, in the renewable sides of the business. And you can make it an argument about, is this, are they the right people to doing this? Does, does being an oil and gas company give you any special know-how when it comes to running like wind farms or solar farms or whatever? But you can see a, a kind of strategic rationale then saying declining oil and gas production to fund the transition of your business and at the same time kind of line up hopefully decarbonizing economy. And I think if you, if you then start splitting the businesses up into two, that would complicate that obviously. But then on the other hand, perhaps it's just not even feasible to talk about, you know, standalone oil and gas companies pivoting in the way I've described. I mean, so the, but in contrast with the, um, Exxon and the other European, the other American majors, the European oil and gas companies, they largely have said they want to be net zero companies by 2050, but they haven't said they're going to stop, um, burning oil and gas. So to come back to those scope three emissions, like that's a really big problem that they set themselves really, because it's not clear how you can actually do that, how you can be a net zero, um, or the gas major, what that means in practice. So I haven't really answered your question. I, I definitely wouldn't want to make a call on the outcome. specific activist campaigns to split up companies. Um, but they point to a conundrum that is just not going anywhere, right? You have different sets of investors who have different uh, angles on the companies that are invested in. Yeah. And just following up here before Thomas asked about private equity, do you see an opportunity for small renewable development companies that are growing to try to get bought out by these larger oil conglomerates like Exxon and Shell uh, as they look to decarbonize by offsetting their more traditional business verticals? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the corporate venture size of, of big, heavy polluting companies that have the money to do it, they'll be buying up not just the energy uh, companies, but also you know, assets and, and probably paying quite a lot to do it. But I think from, you know, from a, from a private investment standpoint, there'll also be, there'll also, there's a lot of investors very interested in the dirty parts of those businesses as well. So if you were to look at, for example, mining, a lot of coal mining operations, for example, have been offloaded by the, the largest global mining groups. And that's because the public markets don't really value coal mining operations all that highly at the moment because it's um, highly polluting. And so compared with like lithium, where people can see this long runway of um, decarbonization and buying fossil, buying um, electric cars, you know, you're willing to put a pretty high valuation on some lithium mines in a miners portfolio, but the same doesn't apply for coal. So that means that if you're a big global mining company sitting on a lot of coal, you've got that's, that could be a problem, but from the point of view of uh, the buyer, there'll, there'll be a buyer out there who just sees apps who isn't under pressure from investors to uh, decarbonize. You'll see that as an opportunity to, to get, you know, a profitable asset at a good price. And there's been quite a lot of that in the first part of this year, I think. And I, I'm sure you could, you can imagine seeing the same kind of thing in um, oil and gas as well. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like with how gas prices are currently, if you're a private investor who bought up. Some projects when when other 
majors thought they were leading more uh, more towards like the stranded assets status. You're feeling proven in your thesis right there. You're feeling pretty good. Yeah. And this is, I think that's a really important point you've touched on. And, you know, when you're speaking about COP26, it already seems a long time ago, right? Since then, this has been, you know, the, the energy price has been going up all year. But since then, it's really become uh, a much bigger crisis, especially where I, where I am in Europe. I mean, currently you're paying, I think in the spot market, I think gas is about 10 times as expensive as it is in America right now. And, you know, even, and even to buy, to procure electricity at your head is, is really expensive. And, and you're right. And that means it's, it's a good time to be, to be selling oil and gas into that market. And, and it's, and it's also for making a real test for, for policymakers, you know, at the beginning, you asked me who are the winners and losers. And, and, and I said, it, it, it all comes down to whether or not the, you know, it comes down to the pace of decarbonization, right? And, uh, an energy crunch like the one we're seeing at the moment, it, it, it's a real political stumbling block. It's not just about like Joe Manchin either. You know, the American energy secretary the other day was exhorting oil and gas companies to get their rig cap up, right? And that's that obviously is very much at odds with the, the tone and the, the, the rhetoric coming out of American politicians at COP26. So those two, it's pretty hard to square that circle. And obviously demand for oil and gas just isn't going anywhere in the short term because our economy runs on it. And you could definitely see, yeah, I, I'm sure that the, a lot of, of investors of one kind or another have, have plans to make money from that fact. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And the complexities of current U.S. politics make any kind of, on a international stage, any kind of pressure on other countries, most importantly, China and, and eventually India, difficult when the U.S. can't even get their own act together on pushing progressive climate policies. One last question on this topic. Do you, because we were talking about disclosures, do you see private capital ever taking on any kind of mandate for disclosures, climate-related disclosures? Is there, as far as you know, appetite from LPs to to see that? Or will there always be sufficient capital to grab up those dirty assets moving for, for the next few decades? I think you're definitely starting to see there is more disclosure, the sustainability-related disclosure in private markets than there was before. But it's definitely lagging behind where the public markets are. And I think when you're talking about whether or not there's appetite from LPs, it depends on, yeah, which, which LPs are you talking about? Which private equity firms are you talking about? And I think one thing that you might see in the years ahead is a, is a great sort of sorting out of assets and, you know, be it polluting companies or shares in polluting companies into, you know, sorting those out according to the, what kind of investor wants to own them. And this is a separate thing from whether or not the economy itself is becoming less carbon intensive, right? Because whether or not one investor hits its own portfolio emissions targets is really kind of irrelevant from whether or not the, the world economy is going in this direction or that direction on, on the mission. So you can imagine like having a bunch of one kind of LPs over here who own oil and gas related private equity firms, and they really don't care about the climate. <laughs> and then on the other hand, all the, the investors sort themselves out into the, yeah, we care about the climate camp and they own the other stuff. And so you've, you, you can imagine that there being more of a bifurcation among assets and their investor base than there is now. And that's a totally separate question, whether from what's happening in the real, real economy. 
I think that makes perfect sense for my experience in private equity. We were starting to move towards some standards for our investors, like Gresby, from an ESG perspective. So I completely agree with you on that front. Switching directions a little bit, but still talking about investment, I'd love to talk to you about kind of the gap in climate change-related project financing that we're seeing. Recent studies have shown that the level of global investment in climate change-related projects is not currently high enough to hit the climate goals put out by scientists. So do you think that this investment gap will shrink? And if so, what sectors do you think will experience the fastest investment growth going forward? I'm sure that certainly in some areas, the investment gap, and that would, you know, that would mean, and that will manifest in increasing amounts of capital going towards certain things. Like, for example, this year, there's more money going to electric vehicles, quite a bit more money going to renewable energy, for example. But I think often when, when you think about this kind of question and related to climate change in the long term, you can approach it in two ways. You can, you can think about what the scientists say needs to happen to keep the world on a certain temperature trajectory. And then you can, and that really requires like really enormous change of direction and a really enormous acceleration in investments in all kinds of sectors. Or you can approach it from, well, this is what we are now. And even, and this is sort of what's feasible. And so say to take renewable energy, I think, um, I think this is from IEA and ARENA, which is the Renewable Energy Association. They say that investment needs to triple to get to, to stay on the 1.5 degree pathway. And, and so the annual investment totals would have to triple. And from this point, it's hard, it's very hard to see, like, how do you get from here to tripling? Because even doubling, that's an enormous growth, right? For any industry. And when you see all the pinch points in the supply chain for energy, say for solar, you need this material called polysilicon, which is in fairly short supply. And if you were to, you can't just triple that overnight. So this is a sort of roundabout way of saying, yeah, I mean, I think in certain areas that investment will go up a lot. Will it go up enough, far enough to to fulfill the the requirements of this energy transition as described by scientists? It's it's kind of harder to see in lots of areas. And in some areas, it's, it's really difficult to see the shortfalls being closed at all. So. Yeah, I mentioned renewable energy, electric cars. Those are kind of like hot topics, sexy areas where everyone's investing. The same isn't true of like building efficiency. There's less in the market for that. And there are a few obvious places to put capital if you want to invest in that trend. Or, or, and there's some areas where it's really kind of not to do with, where it's less, it's harder to make it, to present, to present a solution as commercial investing at all. So for example, climate change adaptation. There's enormous, I, think, I don't know how far we are, but like, oh, we're, we're globally, the, the investments in climate change adaptation are a fraction of what they are supposed to be, to be protecting vulnerable communities from the increasingly severe and frequent extreme weather events, rising sea levels and the rest of it. There's no, it's hard to see the moment where that money is going to come from. Yeah, I think it's the the age-old problem of the shiny new toy gets the most attention. We have what you can probably call a bubble in EVs with Rivian's market cap being being larger than Ford's and having produced, I think, what, 600 vehicles so far or something like that. And then communities that need more attention, geographies that need more attention, sectors that need more attention, not getting what they need. I think uh, partly this comes back down to, you know, policy choices. I mean, if, you know, if, if 
the regulatory environment changes, it becomes much more costly. Exactly, I mentioned building efficiency. It's a really big contributor to uh, of greenhouse gases. If politicians were to make it so it's really expensive to 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 be selling or no one wants to be buying really energy inefficient houses, then perhaps you'd see more uh, investment in that sort of space. But some of these areas is, is like the money needs to be channeled and maybe the policy frameworks aren't always in place for that to be happening right now. I think that's spot on. I saw probably was somewhere obscure on Twitter or something like that, but in the beginning of COVID when all schools were empties, would have been a great opportunity to upgrade all school buildings throughout the world essentially because they were empty you could have they most of them are are decades old and not energy efficient in any way and there would have been a great opportunity to do that and get people back to work but so yeah i think policy choices is is one of the laggards there from a different side do you see and we've kind of talked about this but do you see any sectors or technologies that are overhyped that are getting too much attention right now and um, you think deserve deserve less maybe on merit Pretty, pretty hard to make a call, especially again, to come back to this point of, you know, the, the ask is really enormous, right? If you're talking about limiting the damage from climate change, really talking about repurposing or reshaping the entire economy. So it's hard to say, well, we shouldn't be spending money on this or that because it's, yeah, you're talking about really far reaching changes and the overall sense of money, terms of money being spent at the moment. Most people agree, like much too small, but are there areas that are maybe getting too much attention? I don't know. I mean, even so you mentioned Rivian electric trucks and so on. I don't know what the numbers are compared with what they should be. You know, I don't know how much, what the appropriate amount of money to be spending on electrifying um, freight is, but I guess there are some areas where maybe hydrogen, there's kind of maybe a bit of a hype cycle with hydrogen, like 10, 15 years ago, people were talking more about hydrogen powered cars and no one's really driving them. And at the moment, hydrogen is being presented as a solution to a lot of problems. And maybe some of those, so I find this is called Michael Rich, I think that's how his name is pronounced, who founded Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He's strong. And his take is that there are some applications of green hydrogen where it would be wasted. So just to take a step back, hydrogen could be used for all sorts of things, and you could make green hydrogen, I think the usual way is by splitting um, water into oxygen and hydrogen using green energy. So you got your hydrogen fuel without making any pollution to make it. And that's a really, that's going to be a really scarce resource. It's really, you know, it's great to have green hydrogen, but what should we be using it for? So that it does the most work in, in, in decarbonizing the economy. And his take is that there are some applications where it's less useful, for example, using it as heating for heating in home, because there are other things we can do to make homes more efficient like use heat pumps, things like that. Whereas it's much harder to decarbonize something like shipping. There really aren't very many pathways for doing that. And one of them is green hydrogen. So if you've only got a limited supply of stuff, maybe you should be, and maybe you shouldn't be using it in certain applications, but I'm not an expert. I don't know. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of that market, but definitely there's quite a lot of hype about hydrogen. Thanks, Ed. We've definitely been hearing the hydrogen hype. So we hear where you're coming from on that point. I think we've hit the top of the hour. So, Ed, we really just want to thank you for being on The War and Current with us. I think all of these insights have been fascinating, and we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and 
Do you have anything you want to plug before we close out? Any upcoming articles that you're excited to talk about? Oh, well, you should subscribe to my weekly newsletter, which you can find by Googling WSJ newsletters and subscribing to the one that's called WSJ Processing for Business. And that's, um, that rounds up everything we've been doing and also point you to the journalist coverage broadly of, um, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about, energy transition, sustainability, yeah, all this, yeah, it's huge and done confusing world of risks and opportunities awesome thanks ed we'll make sure to include the link in the show notes cool thanks for joining us on this episode of the wharton current our podcast guest ed ballard's newsletter that he mentioned can be found on wsj.com backslash newsletters under the title pro sustainable business (laughs) 